the Greek letter psi is the first letter of the word psyche, meaning mind, and is used to refer to anomalous experiences and the paranormal. Today's guest says that an academic bias against psi research means that it is neglected and underfunded. Getting scientists to admit to anything mystical or spiritual is not easy, but retired Chico State University professor Gail Kimball has done that in her book, The Mysteries of Reality, Dialogues with Visionary Scientists. This is one of three books in her Mysteries trilogy that explores how consciousness shapes reality, enables healing, and provides access to knowledge from beyond the physical senses. Dr. Kimball is an award-winning author or editor of over 20 books and describes herself as a feminist academic who does clairvoyant work. Gail Kimball, welcome. Thank you, Nancy. It's so good to see you in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I often uh, interview people who are retired, and usually that doesn't make that much difference. But in your case, I think it does because you can say what you have discovered in your research without wondering, oh, well, maybe I won't get tenured if they think I'm this weird. You know what? I, as a coordinator of women's studies, they assumed I was weird. <laughs> and I, a funny incident is we would do energy balancing, chakra balancing, uh, like at the Thursday night farmer's market. And the dean of my school came by and he said, oh, Gail, are you doing massage? And I said, no, sir, I'm doing chakra balancing. Would you like your chakras balanced? And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> so yeah. I've never, ever had, had any reason to keep my mouth buttoned about matters of principle or truth, ever. <laughs> well, you've written so many books, and it's over 20 books now. 22. 22 books. <laughs> and this one that I want to ask you about today, you interviewed scientists who... Their credentials were pretty amazing. Impeccable. Impeccable credentials. Nobel Prize winner in physics. And PhDs, a lot, variety of interests. MDs. And, yeah. In fact, uh, Eben Alexander, for example, ND, was one of the people you interviewed. For this particular book, you interviewed 19 people. And the amount of information that you include in your book is rather staggering. You had to do a lot of preparation. I did, but I've been working on this field for a long time because earlier I'd written uh, your essential energy tools, how to develop your clairvoyant and healing abilities, and I had done a lot of research for that, and I've been to conferences like Science and Consciousness and Santa Fe, so I wasn't coming to this from the scratch. Yeah. So how did you go about putting this book together? Well, what happened is, as a practitioner and a researcher, which I think is fairly unusual, people usually do one or the other, um, I went to an energy tools conference in Toronto, and that was in 2018. And there were all these scientists and MDs doing these really woo-woo talks, like a woman named Joyce Hawks is a PhD in chemistry, a chemist, who does remote healing from a distance and has all these healing effects. And I thought, I've got to write about this. This is so unusual and so mind-bobbling and so mind-expanding. We need to know about how they can do be in both worlds, the academic world, the medical world, 
and in the world of Psy. My guest is retired Professor Gail Kimball, and the book we're going to be talking about today is one of a trilogy. This was entitled The Mysteries of Reality, Dialogues with Visionary Scientists. And one of them is a neurosurgeon, and I read his book years ago when it came out, and what did you find when you interviewed Dr. Alexander? Even Alexander is so fascinating. He was a top-notch Harvard med school brain surgeon, uh, followed the traditional materialist paradigm, thought that this kind of exploration was just woo-woo and not worth considering. He was also agnostic. He'd been raised as an adopted child in a kind of traditional Methodist family. But he said about 10 years before he had a terrible disease, he kind of gave up on God, um, partly because he had a, the opportunity to meet his birth mother, and she refused. And he, he was really struck by that. And then he had a brain disease, encephalitis, blah, 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 blah meningitis. <laughs> it's a mouthful. But. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was out of it for a couple of weeks, and he said his brain turned to pus. And so he should have lost all his memory because his brain was so destroyed. But what happened is he gradually remembered the visionary experiences that he had while he was in a coma. And that completely transformed his belief system, as usually happens to people who have near-death experiences. So NDEs are a really good look into the other dimensions. And a lot of people have them, and some people remember what happens in their NDE. And then he became a believer in spiritual and God and the Golden Rule, and now he and his partner Karen uh, do play shops rather than workshops, write books together, um, so his, his life transformed. Well, I seem to recall, because I read his book years ago, that he also said that after he started talking about his near-death experiences, his other doctors said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they had a medical crisis in their own family, which doctor did they turn to? Dr. Alexander. So I think that uh, when it comes to really these important issues in one's life, they're the kind of doctor these other scientific doctors wanted to talk to. Hmm, interesting. Um, he also had a, 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 his experiences were similar to Robert Monroe, who's another really interesting person, who was a traditional businessman in Virginia and he started having out-of-body experiences where he could astral travel. And Monroe's written, I think, at least three books that I've read about his astral travel experiences. And what was interesting is that Alexander's experiences and descriptions were very similar to Monroe's of what it's like on the other dimensions. And so I asked Dr. Alexander, had you read any of Robert Monroe's books? He said, no, I had no idea there was anything like that. So it's interesting when experiences started to repeat and you get a sense of, okay, there's kind of a consensus of what's on the other side, which is interesting. I thought also interesting with these different interviews, a lot of them mentioned that Einstein promoted 
something while he was practicing. And then toward the end of his life, he said, you know, I got it wrong. I, I wasn't quite right about that. And Darwin, Charles Darwin, some of these guys said, you know, Darwin promoted evolution, but as he got near the end of his life, he was singing a different tune also. Well, what Einstein said is everything is energy, there is no matter. And the fact that everything is energy means also that we're 99.9% .9 empty. Uh, we're full of space, which I think partly explains why you can do healing work or clairvoyant work because there's this vast space that carries information. So information it travels. Uh, and some of the scientists, have, as you know, said that the, the greatest revolution since Copernicus and the, the crazy idea that, oh my gosh, the sun's the center of the solar system? Oh no, that's heresy. But the, the biggest revolution since then is the consciousness revolution, that consciousness is the ground of everything, not materialism. And the materialism has led us into the destruction of the planet, into uh, the belief that there's no free will because it's all determined by our chemistry and our biology. So what we're looking at is, is a huge revolution, a paradigm change that if people accepted would mean that I'd realize there's karma and reincarnation and I better be nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned this question, um, you asked similar questions of each of your uh, scientists. And one question you typically concluded with, are you optimistic or pessimist, pessimistic about our future of humankind? And did you find any consensus on that? They agree the planet's going to survive. <laughs> the planet's going to survive. <laughs> yeah, but it's questionable about we will, whether we will. And we know that the, uh, the climate scientists just re uh, released a report that said we have maybe 10 years to turn things around. And, you know, Biden just signed a drilling oil in Alaska exploration. So it um, doesn't look good. My guest is uh, retired professor Gail Kimball. And she described herself as an academic who does clairvoyant work. And did you, have you always been clairvoyant, or is this something that can be taught? Can you learn to be clairvoyant? I, I teach it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a Zoom class that meets every other Tuesday night, and we do clairvoyant and healing techniques, just like or my book, Essential Energy Tools. But I will say that I had uh, unplanned precognition, little visions of things that are going to happen, and a, a man I was going to meet, a job that I was going to get. Uh, into it, what was going on with a boyfriend? You could see where my values were, <laughs> and um, and when I took the training program at the Chico Psychic Institute, uh, I was there a couple nights a week for over a year, and so then I learned to turn it on at will. So now I can just go. Boop. You want a little reading, Nancy? I can give you one. Well. When you do these readings, um, does the information, how does the information come? Because I know some people get information in dreams and they wake up, that's the answer I've been looking for. A lot of scientists do. So in what way did the information come to you? How does it, how do you receive well, it? Well, what, what the Berkeley Psychic Institute tools are, they, they use a rose and they, the stem means this and the roots mean you're grounded and the 
leaves mean how many children. So they develop this little template so you have something to start with, which makes it a lot easier. <clears throat> and then I've gone away from that. So I, the way we read is the person says their first and last name a couple times, and then an image will come up. And it's for you. Yes. For you, the clairvoyant, doing the reading. Yes. And then, um, and then it start, as you talk about what you see, it, the information flows, because we know there's quantum mechanics tells us there's non-locality, uh, there's information field, except they don't really know what that is. Um, and then it, it kind of unfolds from that original picture. And a lot of times I have students come to me and say, but I'm not visual. I'm not a visual, I'm auditory or I'm kinesthetic. Fine, well then some people will hear the message or feel it in their bodies or intuit it, but it's just easier because the visual has so many different cues. So some people are relaxed when they're sleeping so they can receive the information. And their conscious mind is shut off because mm -hmm. the worst enemy of clairvoyance is your analytical left brain because mm -hmm. it interprets and it could be totally wrong. So the, part of the, the teaching is to quiet the analytical left brain and not let it impose its ideas on the original image, but let the whole brain, the right brain, um, listen to the source and not to what you think that it means. So it sounds like people uh, go into a meditative state. So, so many of the scientists you interview promoted meditate and meditation. So is this part of the training? Well, Stephen Schwartz calls it, he has a, initials for it, sustained focus awareness, and IFA he calls it. And he, he says that, that what makes meditation so powerful is it teaches you to focus. Because we know that we have monkey minds. Oh, I should do this, and oh, I should call it. And when you are a practice meditator, then you learn to focus and to calm your thinking, your left brain jumble of thoughts. And we know from the studies done at University of Wisconsin on Tibetan monks that um, it, different parts of the brain develop in meditators. So it, it really does change your brain muscles, so to speak, from in meditating. And there's so many techniques for meditation. Transcendental meditation comes up often in this as where Mind people started. But there was one person who said, you know, uh, the wise people for thousands of years in the East, say in India, have been promoting meditation. But he says, you know, I think we should uh, not rely on those techniques from 2,000 years ago. And he suggested a different kind of meditation. So do you, what do you find works for you, Gail? Um, I'm a really kind of a hyper person, so what works for me is to walk. <laughs> to walk and meditate. <laughs> it's really hard for me to sit still. It's not a natural process for me. Um, so uh, walking and meditating, and I, I made a, a CD that has my the meditation that I've learned from the Berkeley Psychic Institute. They, they call it running energy, and it keeps your mind busy. So you bring in earth energy, bring in cosmic energy, go up the chakras. So having that kind of a drill of what your mind can focus on is, is what works for me. For people who say, oh, 
just if a thought comes, let it go away like a little cloud and just come back to your, it's too many little clouds. <laughs> <laughs> My guest is retired Chico State Professor Gail Kimball, and her book is The Mysteries of Reality, Dialogues with Visionary Scientists. We'll be back to continue. Gail Kimball, who has written a book including dialogues with visionary scientists. Well, there's a famous psychic from years ago, the last century, named Edgar Casey, and one of your interviewees uh, found himself at the Casey Institute, and Edgar Casey would go into a trance to convey the information. And have you done much uh, in investigating uh, Casey's information and methods? Well, Stephen Schwartz, who's in the book, spent five years reading all of Edgar Casey's uh, testimonials. And it's interesting because the reason Stephen Schwartz did that is a woman had a dream that she should go contact him, drove up to his house in Virginia and said, I had a dream that you needed to look at the Casey materials. And he ended up spending five years. Um, but Stephen Schwartz said that he learned that Casey could do the work without the trance, which I think is interesting but it was convenient because in a fundamentalist christian era it was easy uh, you know a lot of mystics say that especially women oh god said it i didn't i don't know anything about it i just channeled the holy spirit so i'm founding christian science or whatever church it is in the 19th century because the holy spirit told me to and that works for them yeah <laughs> My guest is retired professor Gail Kimball. She's written a trilogy, actually, of mysteries. And the one we are looking at today is The Mystery of Reality, Dialogues with Visionary Scientists. And all of their 19 uh, people you interview, men and women, mostly men. Yes, and I looked for women, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, a lot of them were uh, because you would ask them their, uh, their, their astrological sign. sign. Uh, another thing, a lot of them had a Jewish background, more than you would expect for the general population. A lot of them were musicians. A lot of them were musicians. Um, Sagittarian was the, and then Libra, and, and then Aquarius. Aquarius were um, one of those. So uh, what, what's your astrological sign? I'm a Gemini. That's part of the wiggliness. <laughs> we're in movement a lot. Okay, well, I don't really know that much about astrology, and a lot of the people you interviewed, when you would ask them about their sign, they said, I don't know anything about astrology. So some of them would would um, would not exactly answer, because you some of the questions you, you started, when you would start a conversation, or at least the dialogues in the book, that would be how you would start the conversation with their astrological sign and other information about them, what their background was academically. And as you've mentioned, some of these people had... Uh, amazing uh, uh, academic backgrounds. I mean, these were not just people who wandered in off the street and said, oh, well, I think I'll be a psychic. Oh, no, they all, they all have amazing backgrounds. Um, like my Nobel Prize winner, what's interesting about him in, in physics is that that's when he started doing research in consciousness and intelligent evolution, which he, he doesn't mean that the universe was created in seven days, he means that there's a design in terms of a divine intelligence behind it. When he started looking at that kind of psi research, they, they said to students, don't study with him, 
stay away from him. So he's an example of how academics um, suffer if they're willing to talk about the, the new paradigm. That's why I admire these people that you interviewed who were willing to go out on a limb and say, this is what I found to be true. By the research that I've done, I found this to be true. And there are a lot of people who are, are so skeptical, I don't think they would even listen. I don't think they would even read your book because they say, I don't believe all that stuff. Right. But I think if people keep an open mind, they might be surprised. Well, I, I found several things surprising. For example, what? Atlantis? There was no Atlantis? There was no Lemuria? But I thought the best... Edgar Casey said there was. <laughs> Stephen Swartz said that he concluded there wasn't Atlantis and Lemuria because we don't have the DNA evidence. But he said that Casey talked about it because if you strongly believe something, it influences reading, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you've mentioned uh, Stephen Swartz's name has come up several times. Uh, what other things did you find interesting that he had to say? Well, he's an experimenter. So I think what's interesting is the proof is in the pudding. And um, he, 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 he was trying to find out how clairvoyance works. And he went into a, sub, into a submarine with, uh, with psychics to see if they could still get information without having any access to any, any kind of waves that could make it through the water. And they, they did their same work just the same way. Even so, in a submarine. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. they all agree it's not a, a wave function, even though we live in a wavy universe, as a, a, a physicist named Carol says. Um, so, I, I, so the question is, how, do we, how does that, answer, that information transmit? And what a lot of the scientists talked about is non-locality is revolutionary. And what, what that means is quantum physics, this is not woo-woo. Quantum physics tells us that if two particles, let's say two photons, are entangled and then they're split to opposite ends of the universe, if you change the spin on one, the other one instantaneously changes in response. When you think about that, that's so profound, that they're so connected. It's so hard for us to imagine how in the world can that be possible. They don't, the scientists don't know, but it they, they, but it, it conveys the idea that there is an information field. They won't agree that there is an information field, but there's some kind of conveyor of information. Um, one of my scientists calls it intelligence fields, and that allows for clairvoyant work, for healing work from a distance. All that is just goes through the information field through this space, I think it's easier to work on space than matter, and if we're 99% space, that makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of the experiments I was interested in, and, and I had come across uh, before, there was a couple of, uh, couple of experiments that I had not, I was not familiar with. For example, uh, one scientist said, okay, I've got some seedlings, some grass seedlings, I've got a hundred of these grass seedlings, and what was the experiment, Dale, that he did? <laughs> this is a professor in Colorado named Garrett Modell, who was, he's a very scientific, 
engineering physics background. Of course, he did not believe in anything like this. And then he got exposed to a friend's library and started reading. So he developed a course at the University of Colorado, brave people, called <laughs> Edges of Science. And so one of its students took these hundred seedlings, as you said, and divided them up into four groups. And then once a month for 15 minutes, well, once a week, once a week thank you, he would take them and to one, he would curse at them for 15 minutes. And then another, he would... He said he was very good at swearing. <laughs> <laughs> he really, it was probably therapeutic. <laughs> that was the time to get his anger out. And then another would be exposed to destroying uh, other kind of grasses. And the other one... Was a control. He had to have a control. Was a control. Uh, and there, there was a fourth group, but I don't remember what well, the fourth Well, he combined the, the swearing and the chopping up the plants, uh, so he did them double harm. And what was the result? Well, I'd like listeners to guess if you <laughs> if you guess the ones that were subject to this negativity grew faster and better. You're right. You mean that were not subjected to it? The ones that were the control left group alone. grew faster. The ones yes. that were left alone grew and were healthier than the ones that were cursed at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember that when you're uh, with your children. <laughs> yeah, and this is why. Words have energy behind them. And yep. another, for example, uh, they did the test with wine, and I hadn't heard of done with water. And chocolate. Yeah. So they said, okay, here's some wine, and we're going to divide. It's the same bottle of wine, but we're going to put it in two different glasses. And how did that experiment go? Well, that, that Stephen Schwartz did that, and Dean Radin is like the dean of the scientists, the psi researchers. And if people are interested, there's an Institute of Noetic Sciences, and they have free weekly uh, seminars that are fascinating. Dean Radin is their head scientist, and he, he, he did it with chocolate and tea, and Stephen Schwartz did it with wine, and they all divided the substance in two parts, one which was meditated upon, like Dean Radin gave it to Buddhist monks and to in Taiwan, I think, and um, and then they asked people which is the better chocolate, which makes you feel better, which is a better tea, which is a better wine, and consistently the ones that were blessed and meditated um, did better. And I think a kind of visual representation of that is the um, the Japanese Emoto. You know about him. He yes. he. Um, he, and his studies have been replicated. He took Tokyo tap water and exposed it to Beethoven or heavy metal, um, swastika hit, Hitler kind of sign, a couple in love in front of the water, froze it, sliced it, and you can visually see the difference. The tap water that's exposed to heavy metal, <laughs> it looks looks uh, ugly. The design is uh, erratic, whereas the Beethoven crystals are harmonious and, and beautiful. So, yeah, the, the, you cannot say that there hasn't been a lot of research because there's been oodles of research, double-blind, triple-blind, with mediums. They've done this really precise triple-blind uh, research um, with substances, everything you can think of, but uh, 
there's resistance to consciousness paradigm revolution. My guest is Gail Kimball, and she has written a trilogy. She's written many books, but the one we're discussing today is one of a trilogy, The Mysteries of Reality, Dialogues with Visionary Scientists. And we've talked about the applications of some of this information. Now, one that I would think archaeologists would be, you know, we can't dig under that pyramid, so I need a remote viewer to tell me, where, where are these bones? And specifically, the bones of Alexander yeah. the Great. Right. And what happened with the bones of Alexander the Great? That's an amazing story. And we should also talk about the Stargate, the CIA remote viewing um, project during the Cold War. But this is a Stephen Schwartz again. Um, by the way, he lives in, in Washington, so he's not too DC. far from us. No. Uh, Washington State. Washington yeah, State. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, and so he did he gathered remote viewers and some archaeologists said we want to find uh, where the bones are and so his remote viewers said they're stained red and some monks came and but we don't know that when you're telling this story we don't know that the bones are stained red we right. just know that supposedly some guy said you know I want, I'm going to protect these bones so I'm going to put this red this cape over the bones that the cape happened to be red yeah, it, right, and then, but the, but the remote viewers didn't know that, but they said right. that they were red-stained bones. So the remote viewers saw red-stained bones. They had no idea why these bones would be stained red. Right. But then we learned, as the reader, we learned the backstory. Right, that the um, Alexander's successor wanted to claim the, the secession for himself, put his red warrior's cape over the, the bones, and and then... Um, then the idea was that the monks came and dug up the bones. Because they, the monks had their own, what they wanted to prove. We don't want these to be Alexander's bones. We want it to be some... John the Baptist. Yeah. And, um, but they, Stephen hasn't been able to get the monks to let him do a test on the bones. So, but, but, it, but the point is the remote viewers described this very specific fact that the bones would be stained red. And they did find red bones. <laughs> now, so archaeologists find it very helpful to get somebody who can see remotely. And you just alluded to another use of remote viewing. And how does our government and our military use remote viewers? The, this is um, a chapter, uh, well, I have several re remote viewers, but one of them who was most involved with the the Stargate program was Russell Targ and what what he would the, the amazing thing about the remote viewing they were interested in Soviet missiles they were over in in their missile sites in their submarines in their 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 military preparation and like the remote viewers said the Russians are releasing this huge sub into the northern waters, whatever that is, and the U.S. military said, oh, that's not possible. They, they don't have subs that big, but the, the remote viewers were correct, and um, they, they had precise locations for um, military locations and that kind of thing. But to me, the most fascinating thing is not just their accuracy, but that you could give a remote viewer a target and they would name the target before it had been picked. 
Yeah, that that uh, then blurs the line between present and future. That in the present, they were seeing remotely something that was going to take place in the future. And we find that hard. How can that possibly be? But remote viewers are able to describe what they see. How do they often convey the information that they receive? They're, they're visual. Like some of the remote viewers were very artistic. Um, so they, they work with a pencil and paper and they, they draw. And, um, and then they're instructed, like Russell Targ says, they instructed them, just pay attention to what su surprises you. It wouldn't be something that you would ordinarily expect or analyze or think about. What, what, what do you pick up that's surprising? Don't try to tell us what the target is. And then they would draw and um, pick up these very specific things. Another one of the remote viewers uh, in the trilogy uh, worked for the military intelligence. And they would say, there's a cargo ship coming. We have intelligence that it has drugs. But it's a huge cargo ship. Where in the heck do we look for drugs? And he, he would take kind of like a, a ruler and move it across the diagram of the ship and see what lit up for him. I think he was more kinesthetic and where he would feel, oh, okay, this is the location. And he told them, okay, when you search this cargo ship, look on this aisle, this sphere, however they divide this deck, up, this deck and they found the, the drugs. Yeah, so I, if I'm in the military or the CIA, I don't care. I just want the information. Right. I don't care if it's scientific or, or weird. That doesn't matter to me. If I get the accurate information, that's what counts. And so I think that lends credibility that some of these people that we would label having psychic powers are very useful. Oh, you bet. There's a scientist named Julia Mossbridge, who is one of the few people that I asked to be in the book who said no, because she was too busy. But she has a website, and she kind of trains people to be what she calls precogs. There was a movie about that with um, Tom Cruise with precogs, where the whole society is geared around that. That's totally fiction. But um, yeah, she says that in, in the future you'll be able to use precognition to deal with upcoming problems uh, before they happen. And it, some, like Russell Targ believes that the CIA, the government, is still using these kind of remote viewing. It, it doesn't have any side effects. It doesn't cost that much to hire one intelligence officer. So I'd be surprised if they weren't. And yeah. the, the Russians definitely did it and probably do it. And the military doesn't tell us everything they're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they probably wouldn't want to say, oh, sure, we're using remote viewers. Well, and it freaked them out because one of the remote viewers looked at the contents of a report in a sealed file cabinet, and it freaked the CIA out. <laughs> but they could look inside the records in a file cabinet. Right. But it's interesting. Targ said what made a good remote viewer is the same thing as Stephen Schwartz said, is that they could focus. And meditation helps that focus um, so that they're not distracted and they could really just zero in on the target. And he said often they were really creative and bright and confident. After a break, 
Professor Kimball and I will be back to continue our discussion of the mysteries of reality, and they are dialogues with visionary scientists. So people who have these special skills can be helpful in to the military, the CIA. Uh, they could be helpful in healing. Mental health. Mental health. And a lot of times I've heard that uh, people have a sense of, let's say if they have a medical problem, and they go to their doctor, and their doctor is trained to be scientific, and their doctor thinks, oh, that can't be possible. So um, what applications are there for healing remotely? We've talked about remote viewing. What about remote healing? Well, let me just say that there's a, a, a anesthesiologist in the healing book, The Mysteries of Healing, called Larry Burke, and he has written books about women who have dreams about having breast cancer. And the ones whose doctors believed them did well, and the ones whose doctor said, it's just a dream, died. So that's huge. But um, remote healing, there have been lots of studies. Um, Larry Dossey is a physician who's well known for his prayer studies. And I asked him because there have been studies, most of them that I know of, of remote healing anonymous groups pray for people who've had a heart attack in a hospital. And the people in the hospital, the patients, are told that someone is praying for you, but they obviously have a control group who isn't, isn't being prayed for, and they have better outcomes. But Harvard did a study where they didn't find that they had better outcomes if they were prayed for. And Larry Dossey, in his chapter, explains why that the the methodology was really flawed in the Harvard poo-pooing of distant intercessory prayer. Well, say these women who think they have breast cancer, it might not have uh, symptoms or signs yet for the doctor to read because uh, there was a spirit, and I've heard this experiment, experiment too, they had a group of slides, some of the slides were very disturbing, and they would show them to people, and these are the kind of slides you would react to because they were so disturbing. And they sometimes reacted before. Those, those are Dean Radin's studies. And he, yeah, he would hook us up and he would show us maybe two-thirds of the slides or a little bunny in the field. Mm -hmm. And then there's something that's violent or sexual. And we react before the slide comes up. And we react before the computer even picks <laughs> what slide is going to come up. Yeah. So, so our view of time as linear is very limited and false in the big picture because in the, the world of quantum physics, there's no time, no space. And that's hard for us to conceive of. We can't. And I had heard, okay, time seems to be linear, but it's not. And so my thinking was, okay, it's cyclical. It's a circle. But then I read in your book where some of your scientists say it's a spiral. <laughs> so what are we to make of time? Well, if you have a sense that I better not go down that road or take that plane mm -hmm. because you have a precog awareness, pay attention to it because time isn't only confined to the present. And there, there was an interesting Israeli study where they did an intercessory prayer for a decade in the past 
uh, for a certain kind of illness in a hospital, and the people that were prayed for had better outcomes. <laughs> well, you know, going back to the fact that people could react to a slide before the computer even selected, and so machines are often brought into these experiments, so we don't have human intervention. Right. But uh, Princeton does a lot of this kind of research, yes. and I'd read that students could affect machines that generated randomly. Right. And they could affect these machines. That's hard to believe. The, well, now, this is the PEAR project, P-E-A-R project at Princeton, and I have the people in, in the trilogy who are involved. The, but it's more than that, Nancy. It's not only that you affect... The way the random number generator machines work is they generate zero or one randomly. But if people are involved, they become more coherent. And if a pair that's in love are involved... P-A-I-R. Yeah, a pair <laughs> who sits in the pair P-E-A-R lab, yeah. uh, then they become even more coherent. And they can change the outcome of what's generated if they don't read the results, if they don't print the results. <laughs> yeah, there's so much that, um, that is hard for our minds to conceive of that these scientists present. And um, what did you find um, that stuck with you from having interviewed these let, extremely intelligent people? Let, let me just say one more thing about the pairs. Roger mm -hmm. Nelson, who's in the books, um, they developed a project where they have the rings around the world, so they read global influences, and this is really profound. They found that when the whole world is thinking about something, that the, the rings re become more coherent. They become like a bell curve. So I was interested in what causes that kind of reaction, and big reaction two or three hours before the planes first hit the World Trade Towers, um, New Year's Eve. But what's interesting, academic conferences don't get any coherence. <laughs> um, uh, big, you know, probably one of the biggest things worldwide is international soccer matches. They don't get a reading and that, because it's, it's divided. You're cheering for your team. Whereas when Lady Diana died, her funeral, everybody was moved emotionally. So there was a coherence in, in the reaction to something like Lady Diana's funeral that so many millions of people watched. Whereas that, I thought that was interesting, too, because I've been where people are just so crazy about world soccer. Yeah. But they're cheering for their team. Right. And so you don't get this coherence that you were just referring to. I, I think, in answer to your question about what sticks with me, it's that what we think we can do is very limited. And one of the scientists said that, Minos Kaftos said that, it's that how, how we think of ourselves is, is putting ourselves in a really small box. That's not how he said it. But um, in fact, as human beings, we have access to so much more information, energy, healing, um, being able to be guided by the spirits that help us so that we are much more than we think we can be. And also, I, what I wonder is a lot of times I'll have an intuitive hit about something 
or I'll have it come to me when I'm sleeping and I'm thinking, is that my little mind or is that the, the guides and the, the, the spirits that are, that are working with me? Yeah. So yeah. lots of questions, but knowing that the mind is extremely powerful. In fact, one of your interviewees, your scientist, uh, the, the subject of angels comes up and spirit guides and this energy that uh, you're being watched over and guided. And so some people thought, angels? Now that's a little farther than I can go along with. But um, you mentioned the difference in vibration levels of these various entities. Right. So um, you, what would you like people to take away from, from reading your book? That there's a whole world of, of the new paradigm that's available to you. And if you read the Mysteries of Trilogy, <laughs> you'll see the, there's the Mysteries of Healing, the Mysteries of Reality, the Mysteries of Knowledge Beyond Your Senses. I think it opens up a lot of doors in terms of what we can do as humans. That maybe expands who we are. We'll try to figure this out. Well, thank you for writing this book, Gail. And um, you do give uh, websites YouTube. So I think if people remember some of these names that you mentioned, they might, might want to go online and, and look into this a little bit. Oh, I should say that if that most of these people are on my YouTube, the interview, the raw, unedited interview. So just go to Gail Kimball YouTube, Google it, and you'll you'll find the, the scientists. Um, the Nobel Prize winner, Brian Josephson, was one of the few that uh, didn't want me to Put his video on tape so he was eating and he had some <laughs> lettuce in his teeth because you did these interviews by skype yeah, so, yeah i can get it well again uh let me tell people the name of your book uh my guest has been gail kimball she's a retired professor from chico state university she's written the trilogy and the one we've been discussing today the mysteries of reality dialogues with visionary scientists thank you gail thank you